We need to open our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans chapter 9. We have spent the past several weeks in Romans chapter 8, and uh, we are entering in today into uh, the newest significant section of, of the book of Romans. We have seen how in um, really going back to May, we looked at chapters 1 through 4, which was the first significant section of the book of Romans, establishing a foundation regarding the depravity of man. Uh, verse 3, 20, chapter 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God, and then how God proactively uh, sought to overcome through the promises made to Abraham, culminating in the person of Jesus Christ, how Paul, uh, or how God rather, God the Father actively sought remedy to the sin problem and thus the establishment of that covenant with Abraham and how God has worked through that promise and uh, ultimately culminating in the coming of his own son, the coming forth of his own son, the Christ who is uh, confirming in his death burial and resurrection that he was the Messiah was and is the Messiah and as the Messiah what is true of him is nonetheless true of us and then as we moved into that next major section chapters 5 through 8 those were significant chapters dealing with the assurance of the promises that that God has given to his people culminating there at the end of of chapter 8 that there is nothing nothing it's almost as if Paul is trying to brainstorm of different scenarios different possibilities of what might separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus but there is nothing and Paul's intent he's trying to write it's a very emotional chapter, chapter 8. Paul intends it to be a very uplifting, emotional chapter to give us a sense of assurance as the people of God that we can rest in the promises of God and uh, the promises that he has made to us that are being fulfilled. And now as we come to chapter 9, this next section is chapter 9, 10, and 11. And this is really the, the theological heart of uh, the book of Romans. It's perhaps the most theologically dense section of, of, of Paul's writing, and certainly it is in, in the book of, of Romans. But as Paul begins writing this, you get the sense that Paul is anticipating questions. Because even though he has already stated in these first eight chapters, though he has shown how God has been faithful to the covenant promise that was made to Abraham and how God worked through the history of, of Israel, culminating in the coming of Christ, who, uh, the coming of Jesus, who is the Christ, who is, is the Messiah. There are those Jews that perhaps are wondering, can God really be trusted? It's almost like Paul is anticipating that question because at this point, the Christian church is overwhelmingly Gentile. For the most part, the Jews have rejected Jesus, that he is not the Messiah. And so the question would naturally arise, and Paul is writing with the anticipation of this, is God truly faithful? Can I, can I really have conviction? Can I, can I really rest upon the promises of God? Or, is, or has God negated his word? Has God negated his promise to the children of, of Israel? We have to, I think we almost have to get away from this mindset, and that's what Paul has done in previous chapters. We have to understand, listen, Paul's not going to say anything different in chapters 9, 10, and 11 that he hasn't said already. 
So if you've really listened intently, if you've listened closely to everything that Paul has been saying in the first eight chapters of Romans, you're not going to be shocked at all by anything that he says in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so Paul is anticipating that there are some that would maybe in their thinking would say, well, the whole thing to Abraham was a wash. That didn't work. Now then God is saying, I'm just going to I'm just going to punt on that promise that was made to Abraham, and, and we're just going to start over with Jesus, that, that all that really matters is from Jesus to this day and, and to the present age. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, and that's what Paul is going to emphasize. He's going to emphasize, you can be assured, even though there is just a remnant, even though there is just a small handful of Jewish people that have believed and responded in faith to following after Christ, you can be assured that God has fulfilled the promise that was made to Abraham, that he has worked through this chosen nation, a chosen people, culminating in their own Messiah, the one true Israelite. It was necessary that if God was going to solve the sin problem of Genesis 3, Doing so required of him that he do it through a people that were part of the problem, not based upon their merit. He chose and selected Israel from the nations of the world, not because they were better, more morally uh, straight than, than anyone else. It's because they were a part of the sin problem as well, and they're going to be a part of the remedy. And so Paul is expecting some objection that somehow God is less than faithful that God cannot be trusted, that God has abandoned the Jews and is focusing on the Gentiles only. Paul says that nothing could be further from the truth. And so I want us to, to begin walking through the entirety of this chapter. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. We're going to cover the, all the way through verse 29 of, of chapter 9 because verse 30 really belongs in the next section. But 9, 10, and 11 are saying essentially the same thing, but it's going to be stated in different ways. Each, each way of saying it is important and vital. It stacks up on everything, has a stacking effect, a building effect upon what is said previously. And that's really what Paul is doing in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's just adding another layer, another layer, stacking up another layer of understanding of what he has already established and said regarding the covenant justice of God in the first eight chapters. But let's pick it up here in these first five verses. And what I want us to notice, the first thing Paul highlights is the impeachability of, of, of God's people, God's privileged. The impeachability in these first five verses, we see that the impeachability, that is the guilt, the impeachability of God's privileged is highlighted. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse. And it's interesting, isn't it, how Paul's, how Paul, uh, it's so true in life, it's a social phenomenon that when we've had our greatest height, we have our greatest low, followed by our greatest low. And that's where Paul is right now as he's thinking about his own kinsmen who have rejected the gospel. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. And listen, it's important that when we hear the voice of Paul, and you really have to listen, listen, we have to stay attuned to the voice of Paul. 
We have to remove our own voice. Two things that you have to do this morning, if you're really going to hear Paul, is you have to set aside either your political bias regarding Israel, or you have to set aside your personal prejudices regarding Jews. Either way, you have, to, you have to remove your voice. You cannot project your voice upon the voice of Paul. And there's a lot of people who just like to hear the echo of their own voice. But you can't listen to the words of Paul expecting him to articulate your voice or listen to Paul to see if he aligns with you so that you can point a finger at him and say, well, Paul's wrong-headed. He just really doesn't understand like I understand. We have to allow Paul to speak about the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God. And throughout this section, throughout 9, 10, and 11, you have to keep that in. He's not talking about individuals. He's talking about people groups. And he's talking about how God uses people groups to achieve his redemptive purposes in the world. And so his concern, as far as brethren, a people group, kinsmen, Israelites, a people group to whom belongs the adoption as sons. And we know the richness of that title. We've seen it in previous week because you and I are co-heirs with, with Christ Jesus. Who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever Amen. From beginning to end, from the beginning of chapter 9 to the end of chapter 11, Paul is highlighting, he's talking about the collective identity of those who would be the people of God, and in this context called Israel. And as Paul thinks about their privileged position, it's almost like in what Paul is doing here, he's setting the stage as he lists all of their privileges, all the things that have been afforded them through their relationship with God as his chosen people. Paul is, Paul is almost like rehearsing the history of Israel. And he's going to, to expound upon this rehearsal of Israel's history in a, much, in a much further way, in a much more intimate way in the verses that will follow. And so he sees them as being a people of privilege. You have been afforded so much. And Paul's heart is grieved. He is suffering deeply that as a nation, these that have had such privilege, these that have been given the covenant, these that have been given the law, these that have had such intimacy and exposure to God the Father have now rejected the way that he has worked in history, culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is, a, it is a taking of granted of the things of God that can ensnare any one of us. As the Jewish people, as those chosen by God, as the overwhelming majority neglected Christ, rejected Christ, who were relying upon their own biology, who were, who were relying upon the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. It's akin to every pastor who has a fear of every name on the church roll, who have church membership, 
but are not a part of the covenant, who are not followers of Christ, who know the pastor but maybe don't know the master, who at some point have made a confession, but their life reveals no conviction regarding the things of God and the call of God upon their life. We can be so close to the things of God. We can take for granted the hearing of the gospel, the call of God to be a unique and distinctive people, to be a part of his redemptive purposes in the world. And Paul will make it abundantly clear that to whom much is given, much is required. For those who would be the true Israel, and we know that Israel and what it is to be a Jew has been, has been redefined over in chapter 2. We'll recall Paul having said in verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And as Paul will say in our next section, as we see there in in verse 6, for they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. You do not have this inviolable relationship with God. You are not eternally blessed just because you descended from, from Abraham. Which brings us to Paul's second observation, and that is the reliability of God's word and how it's affirmed. The reliability of God's word is affirmed. And that's what Paul is doing in the retelling of this history, this, Israel, this history of, of Israel. You know, it's interesting how well the Hebrews know their story. How well the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the Jewish people know their story. Do you know that 85% of Jews, Jews by birth, 85% today are agnostic. But you go to any agnostic Jew and they will say, what is your story? What is the story of your people? And without fail, every agnostic Jew will say we were a people enslaved. And they will tell the history. They will tell their story from either Abraham or some even go back to the, to the creation act itself. But they can tell their story. They know the richness of, of their narrative as, as the people of God. But now Paul is, he's reframing their history for them. And I'm convinced that some people come to the book of Romans, especially by the time they, they get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, and they go, man, this book, boy, Romans is hard to understand. And I I believe the reason that it's thought to be difficult is because of our illiteracy when it comes to the Old Testament. Forty times in chapters 9, 10, and 11, 40 times in three chapters, Paul makes Old Testament references. Well, for the most part, Western Christians are illiterate when it comes to their knowledge of, of the Old Testament. They don't really know the rich stories, the rich narratives of, of Israel's history, which Paul is going to be, to be referring to here. 
But what Paul is saying to, to those Jews that might raise this question about, about is God, can God really be trusted? Is God really true to the promise that he made to Abraham? Can he really be trusted or can he, has he abandoned us? Paul is going to refer to their own history. He's going to reframe it. The reliability of God to his promise that he made to Abraham, it, it's recorded in, in our story. You've just misinterpreted it. You've taken our story and embraced it as, as giving you a place of privilege. Eternal blessedness that, that has no requirements what, whatsoever. But, but, but the promise that God has made to Abraham and the way that he has fulfilled it in this line leading all the way to the person of Christ. You can be assured that God is faithful. He's, he's affirming the word that, that God has given us. We'll see the word that is being referred to here is the promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah regarding a child. The promise that would be fulfilled in the birth of Isaac. Let's pick it up in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Again, he's affirming God's word. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for they, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because, because they are Abraham's descendants. But, but through Isaac, and here he is making reference uh, again to Old Testament passage that, that they should know, through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but but the children of the promise are regarded as, as descendants, that is, as progenitors of, of who will be Jesus the Christ. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, and not only this, he writes, but... But there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of the works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hate it. In this rewriting, in this retelling of Jewish history, this affirming of, of God's word, the promise, is, uh, the promise being referred to here is the promise made to Abraham and Sarah, old in age, that you'll have a child. Now, we know Abraham had other children. But there was, but there was only one line of succession that would lead to the Christ. We know that that. that Abraham had a child with Hagar, the maidservant of Sarah, Ishmael. And the Jews might be tempted to say in this regard, well, yeah, we, uh, we understand why, why God would have, would have chosen Isaac. <laughs> I mean, God's, God's not going to bless that lineage. God's not going to bless that line with uh, this union between a, uh, Abraham and, and Hagar, the product that, uh, that became Ishmael. God, God's not going to bless that. I mean, she was just a handmaid. She was a nobody, just a servant. But Paul's thinking is, no, before you become so arrogant, 
thinking about some purity of, of your lineage, I, I want you to see how God acted here because when, when God acted, when, when Rebecca, when Isaac and his wife Rebecca had twins, first twins in the Bible, Jacob and Esau. He said, no, they, look, Rebecca had, had, had Isaac, your father. That, he's the one, that, he's the one that, that fathered these children. That's how these twins were were conceived, and yet we see that even though the twins, verse 11, were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his own choice, would stand not because of works, and again, grace is always the emphasis, all of these choices about nations, about people groups. These are not based upon merit. This is God's doing. This is God's grace. This is God's mercy. His choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul quoting Malachi chapter one in verse two. I know that verse hits us right between the eyes, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds harsh. When you read this verse, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now to appreciate what Paul is saying and in continuance of what Paul is saying about God working through people groups, nations, you would have to go back to Malachi and understand that as the prophet is writing, as he is recording these words, he's talk, when he talks about Jacob and Esau, he's talking about their people. He's talking about the people groups. And in Esau, he's talking about the Edomites and the anger there because the Edomites, the people of Esau, they failed to respond to Israel when Israel was in need. When Israel needed aid, the Edomites were not there, the descendants of Esau. And so Paul's theological objective here is not, not to set forth some kind of predestination of individuals, some that are going to go to hell. Some, it's not about individuals. It's about nations. It's about, it's about people groups. It's about how we can be assured as the people of God that God takes a group of people so that, so that his purposes might be fulfilled. His redemptive purposes might be fulfilled. And frankly, we shouldn't be shocked by the language. I mean, it's no different from Luke's gospel, chapter 14 and verse 26, when Jesus is talking about the, about the demands of discipleship, that those who would be his follower, followers, that if you don't hate your mother and father, you're not fit to be my disciple. If you don't hate your mother and father, you're not fit to follow after me. It means love less. He's talking about allegiance, first priority. So Paul's, Paul's here, it, again, good sound biblical interpretation. This just builds on everything that Paul has said in the previous eight verses. This, these are verses in chapters of continuity that add another layer to what Paul has already said regarding God's covenant justice. That he has, in fact, through people groups, through a, through a chosen people, he has fulfilled that covenant, that promise that was made to Abraham through a people group for the benefit of the world. 
these, I was going to say these are not proof texts for double predestination, but they are, they are proof texts when they're taken out of context. And there are those who lift these passages right here in particular. They lift these out of context as some sort of endorsement holding forth some kind of double predestination that there are some individuals that are predestined for hell while there are other, pre, uh, other individuals predestined for heaven. That is not Paul's theological objective. His theological objective is not trying to discriminate, not trying to discern who is predestined for hell, who is predestined for heaven. He is talking about the responsibilities and the obligations of a people group to perpetuate the purposes of God. And what God has done through this action of predestination, as we will see in what follows, it is always for a positive good. Here's the error you can easily make. When you lift these verses out of context and you make them proof text, that means making it what you want it to say or what, what you think they say based upon those verses standing alone. When you lift these out of context, we tend to make it into something, we tend to take something like predestination and we fashion it into something that is very narrow, something that is very limited, something that is very exclusive. And when you do that, you become no different than the Jews of Paul's day. And that's why Paul is reframing their history for them, that, that this has been in God's word all the time. You've just missed it. You've made this idea of election, you being the chosen, the elect of God from the foundations of the world. You, you have taken that which was intended to expand to be a light under the world. You've taken that and made it into something that's just yours, something that is exclusive and has, in fact, become divisive. And so if you, you take this and you make it into some kind, of pre, pre, uh, some kind of double predestination for some that will go to hell, some that will go to heaven, it lends itself to an arrogance and an exclusiveness not like the, the Jews of Paul's day that when Paul that when God is working through these acts of election through these acts of predestination it means God has a plan he is working his plan he is fashioning his plan always for a greater good always for a greater redemptive purpose which brings me to this the sovereignty of God's elect is reasserted notice it begins in verse 14 what shall we say then there is no injustice with God is there, may it never be. In fact, that's what Paul is showing, God's justice, especially when we see justice in Romans, it's about covenant justice. No, the covenant justice has been fulfilled. Everything that was said to, every promise that was made to Abraham and his descendants, it has been fulfilled through Christ Jesus. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, again, he's retraining them on their biblical understanding, their Torah understanding. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that whole narrative in Exodus is worth going back and reading on your own. It's an interesting conversation between Moses and God. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
And again, this highlights the sovereign election of, of God and how he is working in ways that are mysterious in, our way, in ways that our minds simply cannot fathom. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. In other words, from Moses to Pharaoh, none escape the sovereign purposes of God. Nothing can negate the sovereign purposes of God that are going to be accomplished. I can take someone, I can choose someone like Pharaoh who constantly hardened his heart against me to the point where I hardened his own heart, who constantly rejected me in his arrogance, who thought he could defy me. This man that was the most powerful man in the world. I made him an international illustration, an international example that the sovereign election of God will not be thwarted. My purposes will not be denied. You will say to me then, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you? O oh, man who answer back to God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right, over, a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for, for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Not only have we received mercy as a people, but he says, I, I have chosen you to be vessels of mercy, not just among the Jews, but even now the Gentiles. Verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, a title of arrogance in past days. I will call those who were not my people my people, those that you least expect, and her who is not beloved, I will call her beloved. And it shall be, and it shall be that in the place where it is said to, it was said to them, you are not my people, there shall be called sons of the living God, the highest title that could be ascribed to any group of people. You see how this beckons us? This is what we have to do. Not, not unlike last week where I said Paul is writing from, a, from the vantage point of the future, looking back, knowing the promises of God, the assurances of God, how they are going to be fulfilled in eternity. And Paul had such assurance and conviction regarding that. He could speak back to the present tense suffering of, of the people of God, and he could speak with the present tense reality because he knew what was going to happen in the future. He knew what awaited them. 
And Paul, when he writes about the sovereign election of God, of how you, and and really this is just a reassertion of everything he has already said. You and I have to read these verses from the vantage point of God. We read it from the vantage point of our own humanity. We read these verses and we think, well, that just doesn't seem, you know, this language that's being used, it doesn't seem fair. We're imposing our human perspective upon what Paul is writing from, from a divine perspective. It's the faith and the belief that what God is accomplishing and what God is doing is much bigger and grandiose and majestic than anything our finite minds could ever comprehend. And we know that he's doing it for a greater good. From my earthly perspective, seems unjust. That's why Paul is addressing this claim of of justice somehow being denied. No, it's, it's being fulfilled. But God is doing it in a way that you would never imagine, in a way that is mysterious, has now been revealed in Christ Jesus. But what I'm doing through my sovereign election, through the things that are predetermined, predestined, it is for a greater good. You, you can rest on that. Which brings us to this final reassurance, and that is the consistency of God's remnant is assured. You see, that's how God is working, and as he has always worked, is through a remnant in Israel's history. He says in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. It goes back to what he has said, they are not all Israel who are called Israel. Yes, the descendants of Abraham will be like the sands of the sea, but not all will be saved. They're the children of the flesh. They're the children of of the promise. For the Lord will execute his word, verse 28, on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah, that is, disappearing off the face of the, of the earth. That by virtue of having a chosen people, by virtue of having a remnant, the promises made to Abraham have been fulfilled on the backs always of, of a remnant. And if it wasn't always for that remnant that there would be no posterity, be no future. God has always worked through a remnant. God's promises and what God is accomplishing has always been accomplished through a remnant, not the masses. I've shared with you before that when the pandemic first began, I thought this is going to be a wake-up call for the church of the West. I really did. I was so naive. I thought this is going to be the grand way. This is what we have all been praying about. There's going to be a wake-up call to the country to return to the Father, to give themselves all the more fully and with greater commitment to following after Christ Jesus, to never take for granted. And I I just knew that in my heart. Then I started a sermon series through Isaiah. 
I thought that's a perfect example of people who are taken off into exile. That's what the pandemic was. Season of exile, disruption of all systems and structures that gave to us a sense of stability and, and well-being. And now all of that is no more and the people are going to return in flock. But as we learned through the prophets in that series, there was not a great flooding back when, when Babylonian captivity ended. There was just a trickling back. That God's people had, had become comfortable in Babylon. Didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. Babylon had all the amenities of modern living for that day and time. I think I, think I like this lifestyle a little better. I think I'll just stay here. It's always just, it's always just a remnant through whom God works. It's no different today. God is still going to work through a remnant. Not through, the, not through the church universal, not the visible church, not through all those that confess faith. But it's going to be fulfilled, his mission and his purpose is going to be fulfilled through a remnant of people. The followers of Christ. For those who recognize they are a part of this great movement, they are a part of this family, they are a part of this elect, they are a part of those who have been chosen and called out to be a part and to be used by God, to be a light to the world. And upon that, we can rest. We can be confident. And as Paul says, you can be assured. God is just and God is faithful to his covenant promises. Let's pray together. Father, might our faith never make us exclusive. Might it never create within us a sense of privilege. But that, Father, it might reignite us. That we being called the people of God, sons and daughters of the Most High, that we might embrace our calling all the more and to understand that, that we are a people who are called to be a light to this world. And that through us, you desire for the Messiah, the Christ, to be made known to others. That through our faithfulness, through the fruit of your spirit, born out of our lives, that others might be drawn to you. And that your redemptive purposes might continue to be fulfilled through us, your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.